Thanks, Jess. Alrighty, well, good morning, everyone. Hope you've had a, a good morning. I was up late wrapping presents, taking photos for our elf on the shelf, and uh, then up early uh, doing presents. But um, we're looking at this remarkable story today, the story of Mary. Before I do, I need to set something up. I've got a little envelope. Nothing in this envelope, everyone can see. Uh, I've got a $100 note. I'm going to put this in this envelope, and I'm going to leave it with Grant for safekeeping. Okay? And I'm going to come to, back to that later. Okay, you got it? You got it. Okay, cool. Uh, you can't have it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Keep it safe. Alrighty. Well, over the past couple of weeks, we've, um, in the lead up to Christmas, we've been doing an unusual Christmas series as part of our church. Uh, before uh, we meet the angels, the wise men, the shepherds, or even the baby Jesus, we meet in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament, we meet the family line of Jesus. It's a long list of names, incredibly boring, except for the fact that it mentions people with real stories. And, what the, and it's Jesus' family lineage. And what it shows us is that Jesus uh, is not a mythological creature, he was a real person, not just an idea, but he was a real person from a real family, and he was a real saviour. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the stories of the remarkable five women mentioned in his genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, last night Bathsheba, and this morning, finally, we come to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she has a remarkable story. Uh, and I'd like to look at that with you today. The story begins in Luke chapter 1. This is how it begins. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And over the next 15 minutes, I want to share with you six surprising features about this story. And the first surprise in this story is who shows up. We're told that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel of, uh, came to a place called Nazareth. An angel showed up. And some of you at this point are saying, are you for real? You Christians still believe in angels? To which we reply, yep, we certainly do. We believe at church here in supernatural personal beings that we cannot see, but who really do exist. In the West, we've spent decades trying to imagine there's no heaven above, no hell beneath, and the result is we've framed out the transcendent realities like God and like angels. In the modern West, we have what philosophers call, we live with what philosophers call an imminent frame. That is, we've framed out transcendent realities and only that which we can see, taste, touch or observe in a laboratory we believe exists. And as a result, God and angels are framed out. We put them to one side and decided to get on as though they don't exist. And the result is, rather than looking from outside the frame to work out what the meaning of life is, we look within the frame to discover our authentic self and what it means to be free and have meaning in life. And that's a spoiler alert for every Disney movie since the 1990s, right? You can be who you want to be. The hero lies within you. You can make it up for yourself. Just stay with the imminent frame. But if this is 
at the way we live, what ends up happening is uh, we end up searching for meaning within this imminent frame. And if who you are or what you become is a product of your free choices, then who you are is also your fault. You and you alone bear the entire weight of your own self-actualization and your own meaning-making. No one can help you in the search for your authentic self. You are on your own. And as a result, we're living in a society right now where we have some of the highest suicide rates in the world. We're beset by crippling anxiety. We experience purposelessness on a scale unknown in history. All because we've said the only thing that really matters is the here and now, and we have to create our own meaning within this imminent frame. You and I were made to be part of something bigger, something cosmic. And when Jesus turns up, the cosmic breaks into our imminent frame to show that there is more to life than the here and now. It's interesting, an English writer in the 1970s and 80s by the name of Francis Schaeffer, when he was giving talks in university uh, colleges about Jesus trying to make a case for faith in Jesus, he would always start with a talk on angels. And the reason he did that is because as he'd enter universities talk about Jesus, most people think that what Christians are talking about is morality, how to be good. And so he, he's like, that's not Christianity. So he threw that talk out and he started with angels to show what we're actually talking about in church today is transcendent spiritual truths. Angels are real. And they showed up to a woman in Nazareth. And that's the second surprise in this story where the angel shows up. Uh, because Nazareth is a little bit like a place called Condoblin. Anyone visited Condoblin? Condob oh, okay, more people than I thought. <laughs> this isn't working. All right. <laughs> it was, I chose a place that I thought no one else would have visited. But Condoblin is this little place I once visited in country New South Wales, 3,500 people. That's Nazareth. No one, no, well, I thought no one had heard of it, right? But um, Nazareth was a town in Galilee, up north in Palestine, very far from the capital city. It was a small rural town, probably 50 or 100 people lived in their homes, no indoor plumbing, no electricity. They had to get buckets, take it to the well, carry their own water. Very simple people living in very simple homes. Most of them would have been illiterate, and that's where God sent his angel Gabriel, to announce the birth of the Saviour. That is absolutely surprising and totally unexpected where he shows up. The third surprise that we read of in this story is who the angel shows up to. We're told that the angel Gabriel showed up to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, the name Mary means bitter myrrh. She was given this name. We're not sure why. We don't know why she was given the name, except that the Jews had a habit of naming their children after the circumstances of their birth. And this time Jesus came into the world, it was a time of great bitterness, of extreme poverty for the Jews. They were a downtrodden people. 
And Mary was one of the lowliest, not a princess in a palace, but a peasant in a small town. And that is who God chooses to show up and give the privilege of giving birth to the Savior to. Here is Leonardo da Vinci's uh, painting of the Annunciation. And just look at Mary there. It's fairly typical of most Christian art. Paints Mary as an older, wealthier woman wearing a crown of gold, nicely embroidered clothes, sitting on a gold throne, holding a baby with perfect hair often. You know, you just note, <laughs> where is this? That doesn't look like Nazareth. <laughs> she doesn't look like a peasant. That's not the picture we get of the Bible. She's a peasant girl in peasant clothes, pulling water from a well, collecting firewood for, to heat her house. She's illiterate, wearing sandals, walking on dirty roads with dirty feet, a handmaid uh, uh, sitting on a handmaid stool at home. Here is a painting by uh, 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 Gary Melkus of the Nativity. And I love this painting. It's before the shepherds come rushing in to announce what the angels have said, before the wise men show up with gifts. And there's Mary, exhausted from her birth, She's not lying on a bed, lying on the dusty floor, and there's Joseph overwhelmed with the task in front of him. Mary is Cinderella. She's not Princess Elsa. She's Snow White, not Princess Jasmine. She's likely 14 years of age. My daughter Maisie is 15 years of age. I wouldn't trust her to drive my car, and yet God entrusts the birth of the Savior to this woman. God's choice always surprises us. He always chooses the humble, not the proud, the weak, not the powerful, the forgotten, not the famous. And that's the third thing that's surprising, who he comes for. The fourth thing that's surprising in this story is why God chose Mary. This is what we're told. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. What could this mean? She went, God favors me? Who am I that God would favor me? And Gabriel goes on to explain. He says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, charis, uh, which means grace, with God. That word favor literally means grace. And that word grace, it, 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 it's, it describes the essence of how a person is saved by God and loved by God and embraced by God. Grace is a particular kind of love. It's love uh, beyond what you deserve. It's love uh, in an unmerited kind of way. Grace is God's favor to the undeserving. And this is good news because if we didn't deserve it, nothing can disqualify you from it. So here is a love from God bestowed on people who don't deserve it, and such good news, because if we don't deserve it, we can't lose it. I like what J.I. Packer, the theologian, says. He says, There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love of me is utterly realistic. It's based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself. 
Isn't that true? That's God's grace, and that's what Mary experiences. Why has God chosen Mary? Why has he favored Mary? Because he's chosen to favor her. He doesn't pick a wealthy young woman, a successful young woman, a significant young woman, a religious young woman. And he doesn't choose them to show that it's not their work that matters, it's his kindness. So he could have chosen, God could have chosen the high priest's daughter, but instead he chooses Mary to show that this is an act of free, generous grace. And you see, religion is all about what you do to earn God's favor. But Jesus brings a revolution. He says, no, 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 God's favor is a gift to those who come to him humbly. So I ask you, this Christmas, stop trying to earn God's favor. Admit your sin and weakness, and God loves to rush and show his favor to the humble. That's the fourth surprise. Now, the fifth surprise in this story is what God promises Mary. Because Mary is surprised. I don't know if you realize. This is what she says. She says, how will this be? Uh, You've promised that I would give birth to a son and call him the name Jesus. And she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, many people today don't believe in the virgin birth. They say... You know, they must have been pretty gullible. You know, if your teenage daughter comes along to you and says she's pregnant, but she hasn't been sleeping with her boyfriend or anyone else, that's not a story you are going to accept. Uh, And uh, Mary knew that as much as we do. Ancient fiancés, parents and neighbors were just as skeptical about this kind of thing as we are. And Joseph wasn't fooled either. Do you remember what he does? When he is she's pregnant, he thinks, I'm not getting married to you. You've been sleeping with someone else. No one believes uh, that she is a virgin. Uh, The philosopher David Hume, he famously, uh, in the 19th century, mounted the case that miracles like this cannot occur because they violate the, the laws of nature. Virgins cannot give birth. The laws of nature teach us you need a man or a woman in order for there to be a baby. And he said, therefore, this cannot have happened. And although modern atheists keep trotting out David Hume's argument here, it's largely, his argument's largely been disproved for the simple reason that what are the laws of nature? They are descriptions of what normally happens and they enable us to predict what will happen if no one intervenes. However, God is not a prisoner of the laws that describe the regularities that he has built into the cosmos. Uh, So there are laws within our world, but if God comes from outside our world and does something special and intervenes in the creation, that doesn't break the laws. He created the laws. And so uh, let me give you an illustration. At the start of this message, I placed, you saw it, $100 in an envelope and placed it on the seat next to Grant. The laws of arithmetic say that if I haven't added any money to it and if I haven't subtracted any money from that envelope, then I should expect $100 in that envelope. Let's see if I'm right. So it just turns out 
There's $10 in here. <laughs> and the question is, have the laws of arithmetic been broken? And all of us are saying, no, I don't think the laws of arithmetic have been broken. The laws of Australia have been broken. <laughs> Grant Vandermerver, is anyone going to report him to the police here? A Merry Christmas to Grant. Uh, I set this up with him in case you're wondering, right? Obviously. But the point is, the laws of arithmetic haven't been broken. It's not like uh, $100 magically turned into $10 within this envelope. And it's not like magically a virgin conceived and had a child somehow in the world without any external intervention. But just like the 100 turned into 10 through someone outside stepping into the envelope, so too in our world it's possible if God created our world that he can intervene into the world. David Hume's argument that miracles are scientifically impossible, philosophically impossible, has been disproven. Uh, the laws of arithmetic actually, uh, they show us... Uh, uh, they tell you what we should expect if there's no outside intervention. But they can't go on to describe what happens if someone from the outside intervenes. When a genuine miracle takes place, it's the laws of nature that alert us to the fact that it is a miracle. If we didn't know the laws, we should never recognize the miracle if we saw one. Therefore, we can't rule out miracles. The universe is not a closed system. This world is not all there is. And God is quite capable of doing something extraordinary if the occasion warrants it. And the birth of the Son of God is such a moment which warrants him doing a special work. And so Mary asked the most practical of all questions, how will this be, since I am a virgin? Now notice she doesn't disbelieve what God has been telling her. She has questions. Many people think that if they have questions, they can't be Christians. And that's ridiculous. There's a difference between unbelief, oh, I don't believe the Bible, don't believe miracles, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's unbelief. But questions are, hey, I can believe God can do whatever he wants to do, but I just don't understand how this is going to happen since I'm a virgin. Christianity isn't afraid of questions because it's not afraid of the truth. And so Mary asks the question, if I have an empty wallet, how is $100 going to show up in that wallet? And the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now personally, I don't know whether anyone else is thinking this, but personally I find how the translators have put this verse difficult because in English uh, there are strong sexual overtones to what God is doing here. And, uh, but in Greek there, there aren't those. The angel isn't saying that the Holy Spirit will have certain relations with Mary, no, the word overshadow is used to describe God's presence in the temple. And the angel is saying, God himself will create something in you. God can create out of nothing. God can take a virgin like Mary and give her a son. God can take on human flesh and enter human history in the man Jesus. And that is what God is doing here. That is the fifth surprise, that a virgin 
will give birth to a child. And then the sixth and final surprise that we read here is Mary's own response. She's told all of this as a 14-year-old girl, probably. And this is how she responds. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Here is a simple woman from a simple town with amazing faith. She knows very little. She's probably illiterate. She hasn't been formally educated. She doesn't have the New Testament. It's not even written. She just has bits and pieces of Scripture memorized from her time in the synagogue, and she trusts God, and she believes what God says. So many of us have far more information than her, and yet trust God far, far less. Some of you think, I need to learn a lot more. Maybe you do, but the first thing you need to do is believe what you've already been taught. Mary knows so little, but she trusts what God has said. She takes him at his word and she says, I am the Lord's servant. Whatever God wants, that's what I want. And I'll do whatever he says. And she is a model for us. So now Mary, now I find this profound Because just think of the script that she's written for her life. What is she thinking is going to happen in life? I'm going to marry Joseph. It's going to be a great wedding. We're going to consummate our marriage. We're going to have lots of babies. I'll live a quiet life, work hard, be a good person. And everyone will say, oh, there's Mary. There's Joseph. What a nice couple. What a nice family. And then the angel shows up and says, God's got another story for you. Whatever, And Mary says, whatever he wants, I'm up for. He gets to write the script for my life. I love him. I trust him. I'm his servant. A 14-year-old says that. It's amazing because she knows what this will mean for her. You realize what she's going to have to let go for this. She's going to have to let go of her plan for her life. Her husband will likely divorce her when he finds out she's pregnant. And she's like, God, if I don't get to marry Joseph, I'm okay with that. And more than that, this would mean she's ostracized from her little religious community. They will likely make an example of her for the other young women. They'll tie her up, they'll dress her in rags, they may even stone her to death as an adulteress. They don't do that, but that's what's at stake. And she knows the scorn she'll receive. For the rest of her life, she will be called a whore. One of the insults they give Jesus is that, hey, Jesus, no one knows who your dad is. That's the kind of woman your mum was. Mary knows all of this and she's willing to let go of her comfort, her security, her reputation, her marry, and she doesn't blink an eye. In an instant she says, I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever God wants, that's what I want. It's so different to the way we respond when the script of our lives get changed. We have our lives mapped out for ourselves And we expect God to bless it, but when he rewrites the script for our life, we are not very happy. And so Mary says, hey, I'm the Lord's servant. I'll do whatever he wants. And at this moment, she stands up in history as a mighty woman of faith, whom every adult in this room could learn from. Amazing, astonishing confidence in God. That's the story of Mary, and that's the six surprises. Now, I just want to finish with two quick little bits of application for us. What does this teach us about how we should live? The first thing is we ought to follow the example of Mary. 
Now, as we look at Mary, there are two errors that we can fall into. If you've come from a Protestant background, our tendency is to forget about Mary. And yet later in the chapter, verse 48, has an important message for us because it says, from now on, all generations will call Mary blessed. And that should include us. She is the most blessed woman ever to live in this world. She's the greatest woman. But the other area we can fall into if we're from a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox background, which, hey, you are welcome here. Uh, But the danger uh, you can make is that you can make an idol out of Mary. And in some Christian traditions, a whole bunch of errors have sprung up about Mary, which says she was sinless, that she and Jesus saved us. And the lesson for us who are from that background is that Mary can't save us. She gave birth to the one who can save us. Later in the chapter, she says of herself, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. God is her Saviour, just like the rest of us. But she recognises that God is her Saviour and that her Son will save her from her sins. So she's not the object of our faith, but she is an example of it. We're not to put our faith in Mary. Uh, It's her Son that we're to trust and pray to. But we ought to follow her example. Every man and woman in this room should look at her amazing faith, the faith of a 14-year-old girl, the way she trusts God and offers her life up to God as a servant to do whatever he asks of her. We ought to follow her example. That's the first thing. The second and final thing is that we ought to trust God with the script that he has written for our lives. Where are you at as we near the end of this year? Has this year gone the way you expected it to or has the script that you had written actually been thrown out and a new story is being written? Mary's script got thrown out the window. God wrote a script for her life and she trusted him with what would come of it. And because of that, God used her to bring the Savior into the world. Now, if the script of your life has changed this year, that doesn't mean God doesn't care. It doesn't mean he's forgotten about you. But you do need to trust him. And that's what Mary teaches us. Her story was hard. She loses her son at the age of 30, brutally crucified. It's hard, but it was good. I want to finish with a story which uh, I find myself returning to every year at Christmas. And I apologize if you've been part of our church for many years because you've probably heard this a number of times. But uh, when I grew up, um, my dad would force all of my, all of my siblings uh, to the TV on Christmas Day for the Queen's message at 5 p.m. Anyone else's parents make their kids do that as well? Um, And as a kid, I hated it, but as an adult, I've come to grow in such admiration for the Queen uh, that I look back on those moments with such fondness and joy. And uh, actually, the first thing that my wife said to me when the Queen died this year was, oh, this is going to be really sad for you at Christmas time, isn't it? (laughs) And it will be. Do we get a King's speech, King's message this evening? I'm not sure. Hopefully we do. Uh, But it won't be anywhere near as good as hers, right? 
But um, Queen Elizabeth's father, King George VI, in 1939, he gave his Christmas message, not on TV but on radio, and he gave this message to a very troubled nation. England was already at war with Germany. Soon all of Europe would be plunged into the horror of brutal, unrestrained warfare. And hoping to calm the hearts of his countrymen, he offered up some words of encouragement as the storm clouds gathered overhead. And he quoted a poem uh, which was up to that moment very unknown, a poem by Louise Haskins called The Gate of the Year. And the poem goes like this. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I might safely tread into the unknown. I need to see where I'm going. But he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known way. And that's Mary. The script of her life changes. All she can see is darkness. She has no idea what this is going to mean for her. But better than the light and the known way is her hand firmly in the hand of the Lord who loves her. And she finds that better than the light and safer than the known way. I don't know what your future holds for you. For some of you, it's very sad, very bleak, very unknown. And let this Christmas story encourage you that you can put your hope in the Lord God. Follow the example of Mary, trusting him with what little you know and trust him with the script that he's written. You don't know the future. None of us do. But he's good and he's proved his goodness by giving us the gift of this child who died for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. That if we place our hands into his that that is better than the light and safer than the known way. Lord, humble us and help us to recognize that we don't know what will come next year, but that if you're with us, we can face whatever comes. We pray that we'd look to the example of Mary, a woman of great faith, who's able to say, whatever the Lord wants, that's what I'm willing to do. I am the Lord's servant. May we adults have even greater faith than hers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.